Well, thank you, Brother Rich, for giving me all that space. Good evening to you all. It's been a blessing to be here. Uh, already, I have my heart's been warm just interacting with uh, Milo and Mary Sue. Traveling down here through this very uh, rich and beautiful Virginia countryside. I've always said I could easily live in Virginia. <laughs> I mean that honestly. It really is nice down this way. Don't you think so, Wayne? Had to ask him. He's from up our way, so if he fits in here, I think I could make it too. Oh, maybe just a few words here. Um, both Sheila, my wife, and me, we both uh, grew up in um, Chambersburg, Shippensburg area, Cumberland Valley Conference. Uh, this is my 40th year of teaching, mind you. Uh, in school, my wife's uh, one of her great fears <laughs> is that I'll grow old and senile and be up there blabbering around Milo and, and everybody will be saying, everybody will be thinking, watch that old man sit down. Uh, as long as she has her same mind, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> that's a good thing. We do have seven children and 23 grandchildren, two. All but 23. There's one just due here real soon, Lord willing. So, uh, of course, Milo and I worked together there at, uh, at uh, Faith Builders for quite a few years. I've been there now, I believe it's my 24th year, Milo. 23rd or 24th, something like that. I'm an instructor there. Uh, we enjoyed uh, doing some administrating together back a number of years ago, but uh, Milo's back to milking cows, and I'm, I'm an instructor. Uh, I enjoy teaching. Told the folks there at the Faith Builders, you know what? Somebody else administrate this place. I love to teach. I'll teach all day long. You take care of the details. Pay the bills, and we'll be fine. <laughs> so the Lord's been good to us, and uh, we are very, very glad to be with you here this evening. And, uh, yes, I, will, I hope I do not... Uh, um, weary you this evening by uh, preaching or speaking or too long. I am known as a storyteller. I'll try to be uh, scarce with them too, if possible. Actually, the title this evening, uh, or the, for the weekend here, is, uh, if I were to give it three words, I would give it, create a culture. Create a culture. This these four messages that I share with you grow out of some work that I've done over the years and work that others have done that I've just listened in on and heard them and what they had to say. And I've tried to pull a few things together and left the burden of my heart as the Lord laid it on me. Uh, I tried to let that uh, come forth in some, uh, I don't know, in some writing and a few things like that. Uh, and I, that's what I'd like to offer to you. Two things that probably uh, have dominated my thinking in the last 20 years. The one is the kingdom of God. Uh, it's probably the one that faith, people at Faith Builders know me the best for or know that I care about a whole lot. Uh, and so, uh, yes, that's the one piece. Uh, a subset of that 
is that has come out and has really uh, been impressed in my mind is this thing of creating culture. Uh, what's the tie-in here? Well, you know, we preachers, not only we preachers, but I suppose you too, uh, we can be very, very idealistic or we can be very lofty in our ideals and we can speak um, about scriptural truths and so forth and so on. Uh, but but the, the question for me is, how does it work itself out in real life? Not only how does it work itself out in real life, but how does it become a part of us? Uh, some passages I would like to share with you that have led me in that direction uh, maybe will help you, help you get on board with what I'm thinking there. But two pieces here, the kingdom of God and creating a culture. You might call it creating a kingdom culture. And really underneath that burden is the idea that we need to stop reacting to culture and beginning to re create culture. If it feels to you sometimes like I'm throwing stones or I'm highly critical or whatever, uh, I just want to say right up front, these are a lot of the ideas and thoughts that I will share with you. I share with you quite humbly, recognizing that I may well be wrong in a number of areas in the ways that I'm thinking. I don't hope to be wrong scripturally, but I mean some of the applications and ideas that I throw out to you, uh, well, they might be whatever they are. Why do I share them with you? We come to an understanding of truth in the gathered body of believers. And I don't think that's just doctrinal truth. I think it's also finding our way forward in how we live our lives in, a, in Western culture with all of its trappings and all the difficulty that comes along with living here in an affluent society. And I think the only way to do that is to actually lay some things out, maybe put our neck out there and have it chopped off a few times, uh, but put the issues out there and have them talked about. So I hope you see two different areas here. Doctrinally, we hope to be right. That's what the scripture says. Okay. Application-wise, well, we, we work with each other. We speak to each other. We, we preach at each other. Uh, we teach each other. We talk to each other in private. Uh, and so in some ways, I'm going to be treading in that where that thin ice is at. So, so how do you actually create culture? How do you create it in your home? How do you create it in the church? Uh, and this, that's such a broad-ranging topic that, uh, you know, I'll only scratch the surface on a couple of different places. But uh, pulled into the, into the church parking lot, just for example, and over there's the old church, and here's, here's this big building. You know, there's a little bit of a different culture in here than what there is in some other buildings. You didn't hear me throwing any stones or being derogatory about that. I'm just saying it is different. Uh, things, it sounds different. It's big. You got to sing loud to fill it up, you know, and a few things like that. Not that important. But my point is, it, it creates a culture. It, it, it gives an atmosphere. And those are some of the things that we argue about sometimes. But I want to push my way that direction a little bit uh, here as we, throughout this weekend. You may turn in your Bibles, if you have them there, to Hebrews chapter 6, and just give you a, a few verses that really, really 
came home to me probably in the last two to, to five years that stimulated my thinking along this line of creating culture. Uh, two passages here. The one will be in Hebrews, the other one in 1 Corinthians. So Hebrews chapter 6 first. It was like this. Therefore, leaving... Oh, let me back up just a little bit. Go to chapter 5. Oh, thank you very much. Some of us people speak too long and get dry of mouth. It would be good to have a little water. Thanks. I would actually like to break in at chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, verse 11. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to, uh, to be uttered, seeing you're dull of hearing. You know, Paul sometimes, not, well, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, uh, sometimes is uh, really more severe. I, I doubt I'll be as severe with you as he is. Listen to this. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, uh, uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. I have no intention to try to unpack that entire passage. Just commented on a bit. So Paul being, as I said, rather severe here, saying, come on, grow up. You're, you're, you're still babies. Now, I'm not saying that of you, but I'm just saying that's what Paul said. Uh, you're dull of hearing, and I have a lot that I'd like to say to you, but you've you, you, you got your fingers in your ears. Now, the passage I really want, though, is in verse 6. Since you're to move on, well, let me let me back up. So what I'm wanting you to feel there is Paul saying, come on, grow up. Let's move along. Let's mature. Okay. Then chapter 6. Therefore, since that's true, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will we do, if God permit. Okay, I was reading that passage one day and asking myself, well, Brother Melvin, how many sermons out of the, in the last ten years have you preached that were outside of the categories that are spoken of right there? Okay, so he says, therefore leaving these principles, and he enumerates on them. I, I thought to myself, wow. I don't know, close to 90% or maybe more of the sermons I've taught and preached in the last 10 years would fall underneath those categories. Uh, Paul, a writer of Hebrews, so what categories are you talking about? Therefore, leaving the basic principles in moving on in maturity. Well, I'm not going to fully answer that question, but I think it's a really good one. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So we're hearing the call to move on, to grow up, to explore apparently areas of doctrine and such like that maybe have been neglected or we haven't explored or we haven't been thinking about. And remember the backdrop to that is we're thinking about creating culture. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
probably the verse that is the most well-known out of chapter 3 is Men of Simon's favorite verse, which is verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I think it appropriate to understand that verse to be core to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I, I think you have to begin there. And it's, it's no, um, I don't think it's a mistake that Menno Simons held it as, uh, as a, a, a core life verse. No, uh, you cannot lay any other foundation than that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And almost every time I've preached from here and heard others preach from here, this becomes the centerpiece. Well, rightfully so in a sense, but you realize it's really not what the main point is. Uh, it's only, it's really, he's saying, well, now, this is the assumption. This is the assumed truth. But here's what I want to tell you. Uh, so let's look to see what he's actually telling us. <clears throat> uh, begin to verse 10. Well, no, verse 9. For we are laborers together with God... Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Listen to the language here. You're, you're God's husbandry. So the plant that has been cultured and helped to move along and to grow, bring to maturity. You're that. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. Now, if I keep saying Paul, forgive me, it's not that I have a strong opinion that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I realize it's never been identified exactly who the writer is. But now and then when I'm going along, I just sort of say Paul, even though I'm not quite sure who the writer is for sure. So, he goes on to say, the writer says, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. That really is the burden of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Okay? It is true that if you're not beginning with that great truth that Christ is the foundation, forget the rest of the chapter. That's true. Agree with it 100%. But I would assume that all of us in this room agree with that general idea that Christ is the foundation. Well, then let's get on to what... the. The core of the teaching is, since that's true, then this is true. Take heed, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. This is the text that I use to, to say that we are, we are actually taught to create culture. Okay? Now, I'm agreeing that we can get stuck on this point. I think we all know this. We can get so stuck on culture, whether it be our own Mennonite culture or Western culture, whatever it is. Of course we can get stuck there. There is another ditch. The other ditch is to act like it doesn't matter how you build on Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not true. It simply is not true. It matters a great deal. What do you think has happened to 20th century Christianity anyway? It is precisely this. If you listen to 20th century uh, uh, 
evangelical Christianity, and let's not separate ourselves too far from it. Uh, it. When you listen to it, we have learned how, and I'm saying we, we have learned how to preach and teach the gospel of Christ, but I'm not sure that we have learned how to build on that foundation. There I'm wondering, and that's what gave me the stimulus to begin to ask the question, so how are we building on this thing anyway? So we've got the basic ideas down. <laughs> but so how do we build on it? And that's what you're going to hear me talking about here uh, in the next little while. Just to, I'm, I'm going to take up a lament for just a little for a bit. I actually have somewhere written that it's not a lament that will change the world. <laughs> It actually is people who are proactive and who are digging in. And, okay, so that's my disclaimer. Laments don't change the world. They maybe help us to see a few things off and on. So forgive me for taking up just a little bit of a lament. Here's some, uh, uh, a few paragraphs that I wrote one time. The culture wars of the 20th century are now history. It seems obvious to some of us that mainstream Christianity in the West has lost that war. By all appearances, the church has given away to the siren call of Western paganism. In 1900, a general modesty was present in America. By the year 2000, the pagans had thrown aside their clothing and were not ashamed of their nakedness. So had mainstream Christians. In 1900, divorce and remarriage was a relative rarity in America. By the year 2000, one in two marriages among the pagans ended in divorce, if they even married at all. The rate among born-again uh, born Christians was the same, or worse, in some cases. In 1900, nobody except the lowest of pagans put rings in their noses and scarred their bodies with tattoos. Today, it is not uncommon for athletic heroes to cover huge portions of their bodies uh, uh, with tattoos, put rings in any of the out-of-the-way places of the body, and engage in all manner of alterations to the body in the name of beauty. Mainstream Christians follow in their wake and in some cases will even outdo the pagans. Furthermore, in just two decades, our government moved from understanding and supporting the idea that marriage consists exclusively of the bonds created between a man and a woman when they bind themselves to one another by vow or by law to legalizing and enforcing by law marriages between any consenting persons, be they male or female. Furthermore, they've gone to great lengths to silence any dissenting voice Witness can know our case. And so I repeat, the 20th century culture wars are over, and the pagans have won, at least for now. I said, it was a bit of a lament. Forgive me. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think maybe too true. Uh, and, and so what am I, back to my point. Other foundation can no man lay, but how are we building on it? How has 20th century Christianity at large built on that foundation? Okay, I want to let go of the lament and just say, from my estimation, it looks like an unmitigated disaster. 
uh, that's what it looks like to me. I already told you I may be wrong, but that's the way I see it. Two primary reasons, I think, that have gotten us on the wrong track, and I, I want to use we and us rather than them. Two issues. One of them, Milo Zier here has addressed, I don't know if you've read his book or not, but on that soteriology. He uses two bigger words, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, just that very, very simple statement, what must I do to be saved? The doctrine of salvation. How do we come to know Christ? Now, I know, I know we can easily write it off, use terms like, well, we don't, we don't go along with easy believism. Oh, and I don't. <laughs> I, I, I'm on board with that statement. But I mean, I mean to go just a little deeper with that uh, when we think about the issue of salvation itself. Uh, but I want to tie the two together because the one I think is the 20th century conception of what it means to be saved or salvation. And the other piece of it is very closely connected to it, and that is the 20th century view of the church, of the doctrine of the church. Because the two, they, they seem to be bumping into each other quite a bit. You know what, I was invited to, uh, uh, well, no, let me back up. I don't know very much about your community, really. Milo has, has always been very careful in our conversations. I don't know, you know, kind of free-ranging. But if you were to ask me to describe uh, the, the, the Bethel Church Fellowship, I'd have trouble. I, it's, it's, I don't know <laughs> uh, the, the details there. But I, I would wonder if you wouldn't have had some discussion along the way about how church membership should work. When a person becomes a church member, when you should baptize, when you shouldn't baptize. Uh, I, 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 I'm not asking you to answer now, but, you know, I just know as I get across the country, people come through faith builders. These are very live questions. Why are they live questions? Well, precisely what I'm saying, we're confused on this issue. We're confused on the issue of what the church is. And who belongs to it? I, some of you likely have read a few things that I tried to stumble around and write, but you know, some of the questions that, uh, the three big, four big questions I keep saying are just the most important questions we must answer. One of them is, who is Jesus? Second one is, what is the church? The third one is, who are its members? And the fourth one is, who in the world says so? And the last one actually is the most critical. Because you realize we cannot really get to the bottom of our questions if we don't know who's going to answer the question. Who says so? And I'm not looking for a person. <laughs> That's, I'm not necessarily looking for a person. But I'm going to tell you folks here at Bethel Fellowship, I don't know anything about your church uh, dynamics or anything like that. But I do know one thing. You have to know how at the end of the day you're going to make a decision and now we know who says so. We have answered the question and we know what we're doing. Now listen, I come, I come from the old Cumberland Valley Conference and the old Mennonite Conferences and, and, and uh, here I, I'm going to get derailed here just a little bit, uh, Milo, but forgive me here. I, and I know how 
The easy way to answer this question is just simply to ordain somebody and let him be the final person who says so. Okay, I just want you to know ahead of time, that's not the way I would answer that question. You still have to answer it. Who says so? Okay, you follow my, my point? Okay, I, so it doesn't, I, you, there's no way that you can actually function long-term as a family, as a church, as an organization, if you can't answer that question. And that's why I'm telling you, they're the big questions. Who's Christ? What is the church? Who are its members? And who says so? How are you answering the questions? You know, all of this is involved, or it bumps into the question of, of creating culture as we answer those questions. Because think about this for a minute. Some of you probably might have been from uh, some of the older conferences where there was more of an authoritarian style. Okay. Now, I just want to be very, very clear to you. As years have gone by, I've been less and less and less critical of people along those lines just simply because I've realized more and more and more what people are up against <laughs> if they're trying to lead most of anything. So I just want to be clear on that. But think about it. If that's the way the question is answered, the way being that we finally just ask the bishop and the bishop says this is the way, that creates a culture. Right there, you're creating culture because that's how you're answering the question. Okay. Well, and I'm saying if we've learned how to ask questions without answering them and then everybody just does what they jolly well please, that creates a culture too. You follow? We create cultures by the way we answer those questions. And that's what I'm wrestling with here. I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 16 where I think there's some very, very fundamental ideas to this, leaving that. I'll come back to some of those issues, maybe a little more clearly after a bit, uh, not after a bit this evening, but uh, more likely uh, tomorrow sometime. have to sort through things here, decide what I'll say and not say or, or share. But uh, Matthew chapter 16 has become, um, I don't know, a, a core passage for me to, to kind of establish some baselines as to where we actually start from, okay? Uh, and I'm already insinuating here, so we build on Christ, and I think this passage lays out some things really, really nicely for us, or helps us to see them. I'm going to begin at verse uh, 13. Well, actually, it, it's fascinating to look at the beginning of chapter 16, beginning at verse 5. You have... Uh, Jesus talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and just basically says, now you beware of that leaven. The disciples didn't quite get it and he had to sort of help them along a little bit until they came to a better understanding of what he was talking about. Uh, but that, that's on one side. So after saying that, look, the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees or the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I'm sorry, he includes both of them, and that's more significant than what I'm letting on right now, but I'll just let that lay for now. He says that, and then he begins talking to his disciples very directly. Verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Remember my first question? Who is Christ? Is the, that question is big. And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, 
in others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I'm going to stop right there for just a moment. You have the introduction right there. The key confession of all Christians must be this one. It's the beginning point. It's that understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And it is that affirmation. And in other places in the Bible, it says we are to say this with our mouths openly and publicly. Jesus is Lord. So here we, now, here we are now circling back to talk a little bit about salvation. You remember, I already told you, I think this is one of the questions. So what must I do to be saved? Here again, it feels like I'm too critical at times, but it feels to me as though we've learned the right words, we've learned how to say them, we've learned how to do kind of the things that need to, so, need to be done without actually owning the great truth that Jesus is Lord. A story I tell sometimes I'll never forget on this point. Sheila and I have had, we were involved in a prison ministry back in Chambersburg. And we had a couple of different people live with us over the years from the prison. One of the, one of the young men that lived with us, his name was Bobby. Now, Bobby was a, uh, was a cocaine addict, uh, came to know the Lord in the prison, asked if he could come and live with us for a period of time. And uh, I, my hat's off to Sheila. She had, I don't know, four children at the time and a set of twins, and they were small. And well, we took him in, and, and he lived with us. And... Uh, now, Bobby had friends in Waynesboro, uh, just south of Chambersburg, and he had been in a rock band and you know, a number of other things. Of course, it was rock and drugs and, you might say, wine, women, and song. Uh, and, and he asked me, he said, Melvin, when I come to your place, don't let me go to Waynesboro. If I ask to go to Waynesboro, get a rope and tie my hands behind my back and don't let me go. And I told him right up front, I said, Bobby, I'm not going to play cat and mouse with you, but okay, I'll do my best to get in your way. <laughs> well, three or four months into things, after he had made many statements about how, as he came to know the Lord, he realized that rock music was out of bounds and a number of other things. That uh, I, it, Sure enough, he wanted to go back to Waynesboro, and, and he began to find sneaky little ways to make it back to Waynesboro. And uh, I, I could write a book on that little piece of our lives, but I'll let that part lay. Here's the, the, the important point. As we talked about it, and I'm using these kinds of passages, I'm saying, well, Bob, Bobby, look, it's not, the question is not whether I think you should be in a rock band or not. I have opinions there, but the real question is, what does the Lord think? Because after all, remember, the core confession is that Jesus is Lord. Well, he immediately said, well, you're judging me. Well, I said, what do you mean? <laughs> All I said was that the real question is that if Jesus is Lord, that's how you answer this question as to whether what you actually do here. And we had a nice, it was, it was an okay discussion, but 
I, you know, it all of a sudden struck me. I remembered that in Corinthians, and I can't remember which passage it is, like 1 Corinthians 2 or something like that. It says, no man can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Ghost. And I thought, well, that's, huh. You know what? I wonder what would happen if Bobby or anybody was actually put right in a place where it really counted. See, I could ask you to stand up right now and say, Jesus is Lord in this congregation, and you could probably even in your heart feel it. Probably everybody in this room could do that. But is that where it counts? So I said, Bobby, I'll tell you what. I didn't tell him what I was thinking, but the verse came to mind, and I said, on Saturday, you and I are going to get in my little Honda, and we are going to go down to Wayne's Bar. I'm going with you. And we're going to go around to see each of your friends. And all I'm, you, you tell them whatever you want to tell them. The conversation is yours. All I want to hear you say somewhere in the conversation, you tell them that your behavior is based, or what you're doing, the decisions you're making is based on the fact that Jesus is Lord of your life. I wish I could tell you that the end of this story really turns out sweet. It doesn't. If I gave you the details of that journey I took through Waynesboro on that Saturday, you'd be aghast. One piece. I remember walking into one house, and sure enough, one of his previous girlfriends comes out of the house, black guy, all beat up, and she immediately falls into his arms because her boyfriend, in absence of him, had beat her up the night before, and so now he's, he's need, she's needing some comfort, you know. And he asked me if it was okay if he went to, over into another room and talked to her. And I said, well, uh, just remember what we're here for. Sure. So he does. After he comes back and he says, you mind if I take a smoke? I said, remember, Bobby, it doesn't matter if I mind or not. What I could not, it actually came to pass. We went to place after place, six places, I think, total that day. Uh, one place where the rock band was actually together, and Bobby could not get those words out of his mouth. Not once. And then I realized that this confession needs to have more bite to it than what we let it have. Uh, incidentally, Bobby is, has stayed out of prison. He's married. He does count himself a nominal Christian today. He, he lives in uh, uh, York, Pennsylvania, uh, and I don't consider it a waste at all. I, I, but but I was amazed at how difficult, well, that he just simply could not, indeed, get the words out when it really counted. And I asked you that question. Where are we at with this question when it really counts? And don't hear me saying it doesn't count when we stand up and say it in the congregation. I'm not saying that, of course. But there are times when it's on the line. It's going to matter. But I say this, that you know what I can or I cannot do or I must do because I serve a master and he's Lord. Then that makes a difference. There's where it counts. That has to be core. And it has to have strength. And I don't know. We can't be judgmental in here. I'm well aware of that. We can't arm twist. But... I'm not saying I did it right with Bobby, but all I tried to do was to create platforms from where he could actually explore for himself the question, is Jesus really Lord of my life? And then live with that question, the answer. I think we need to push there a little harder on strength of salvation. 
I think we have been cowed by the words, a lot of the evangelical, I, I don't want to pick on the evangelicals, there's a lot of words that kind of go along the line. We hear it in circles that we're not saved by works. I can't agree more. Understand that. But Jesus is Lord. And it does matter. And it does mean that it changes your behavior. It changes the things you do. It does mean that. Uh, without it being, anyway, I'm probably pushing on that point too hard, but I just want to make that. Let's go on. If that's true, verse 18, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, this rock I will build my church. I didn't check this out today. Uh, uh, Rich, maybe you or somebody else can correct me, but I think I'm right on this. As far as we know, in Jesus' recorded words, this is the only place he uses the word church, I think. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I think so. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to, we, I, I think, we need to rethink our view of the church. It is imperfect. Uh, but listen to me. This little gathered body of believers here, if we believe our Bibles, do you know what's true? The only earthly, I'm going to use the word earthly, earthly, tangible organization that will transcend time and eternity is the church. It's the only one. I don't know what your big business is in town, but I can tell you, if it lasts a century, it'll be lucky. I, I, don't, I don't know who the big tech company is around here. If it lasts 50 years, it'll be lucky. The church is the only organization that will transcend time and eternity. Tell me, answer a question for me. If we really believe that, then why shouldn't we give everything we have to it? Pray tell. When it occurred to me somewhere in my, I don't know, my 20s, when Sheila and I were trying to wrestle through what we were going to do with our lives and where we were going to point our lives and all of that, this was one of the things that just came hammering home to me, and that is, if I actually believe what I say I believe, what... Why in the world wouldn't I give all of my time and energy and strength, whatever I can find, to the cause of the kingdom of God, or the church, if you please? As it, I, that's, I think that's probably the reason I'm standing here this evening. My, my life would have gone another path. I don't know if it had been a bad path, and don't misunderstand me here. I don't have any issues whatsoever with a man who goes into business uh, as the Lord has directed him or, or whatever. I'm not or belongs to an organization, that uh, farming organization or whatever. That's not my point. My point is, why shouldn't we be excited about the body of Christ? <laughs> now, here's what I didn't, I didn't tell you we should just overlook warts and problems and all that. That's not my point. But we overlook a lot of other warts and problems to do a lot of things we want to do. Why in the world wouldn't we do that in order to give our, the strength and energy that we have for a cause that really has the capacity to reward us not only now but in eternity? I, for some reason, I can't quite get that. It's, it's hard for me to understand why we, we can't get past that simple idea. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Ladies and gentlemen, I've staked my life with that organization. And it may get, I don't know, it, it, 
get that he has all kinds of warts and bloody, bloody noses and all that, and that's fine. I still, I still wear them out because they're the ones that are going to last. <laughs> the other ones aren't. <laughs> uh, so that's it. Let's go on. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be, shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And charged his, his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Simple statement here. I know these verses have been argued over many times. I know that. Nobody, no serious Christian, no serious reader, nobody who understands the English language could miss that Jesus is conferring authority on the church. He just simply is. I agree that we may not know how to make it work. And we may struggle as to just exactly how, but, but Jesus did confer authority on the church. Let us be diligent to search out how to actually open up the doors and let that authority actually work. If you want to ask somebody who says he's plenty confused about how it's supposed to work, I'd raise my hand real quick. <laughs> but you will never get me to say that there is not true authority given to the church. There is. We just need to be diligent and work hard, work very, very hard to discover how, in fact, to bring the authority of Jesus to bear upon our own personal lives, the lives of, of our children, our grandchildren, uh, in our churches. I, I don't mean in an authoritative way. I just mean in authority. But it's actually, it's a real presence that has real capacity to move in the lives of, you know, we call it discipleship. That's the word we oftentimes use for it. It's a great word. Uh, it, 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 and it's, it's the authority of the church at work in the lives of people. And I just want to encourage us on that line. I don't have big answers here. I, I just It's an area I deeply, deeply care about. And we've worked hard there at the uh, Medieval Mennonite Chapel to try to think through how, how, how do we disciple each other in ways that the authority of Christ is actually active and moving in our lives and changing us. How does that happen? Huge question, I think. But we're not done with this passage yet here this evening. If we go on here, we also have, I think, the kingdom ethic. The actual piece, the methodology is given here, if we keep reading. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how the, he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things, of the elders, chief priests, and scribes had be killed and raised and be raised again the third day. And now I'll paraphrase. And Peter said, well, I know one thing. That's not the way to do it. What you just got done saying is not the way, that building church thing and all that. I, you're not going to do that, Jesus. And then Jesus said. Well, I'll read what Peter said. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, it be far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And now here's the answer to the, I would say, a wrongly placed authoritarian method to go about what I just got done talking about. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. 
This is the working ethic of the Christian church. This is the working ethic of the Christian church. It's right there. You, you do not make any of this happen by strong-arm tactics, by, by the ordinary methods of authoritarianism. That is, you, that's not the method. The method that's actually used here is you are willing to lose your life. You, you, you deny yourself. You take up your cross. And God help us if there's anybody in this room who needs a lot of coaching and a lot of discipling on how to do that day in and day out as a dad, as a grandfather, as a leader in the church, as a teacher. It's me. Okay, But I'm telling you, I know it's clear. And if it's not there right up front, then most of what I just got done saying that I think Jesus is teaching us starts to go right out the window. Let me read it again. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. That's right in the face of Western ideas of personal development. Personal development in the Western world is all about me. But let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I dare say that at least if, if, the, if the church of Christ could get a hold of just a few of these things, not because I said them, of course, but because I think they're here in the Scripture, if we could actually live out of this, I think it would revolutionize our churches. I think it would change them dramatically. <clears throat> and remember, we're talking about creating a culture. And, and by this... I think sometimes we, the reason I keep coming back to that is don't think of just single events here that either fail or succeed. Because what I've observed in my, as a teacher, I know this is true. So you have a classroom of students who are known to be troublesome students. Okay? Do you win that battle on the first day of school? Well, there's a battle to be won there because I've been there before. Okay, and that is on the first day of school, you, you want to do well there, but I, you know. There's, I always tell would-be teachers, you can lose a few skirmishes. You just have to be sure you're winning over the long haul. <laughs> so uh, it, it, that's what I mean by culture, okay? Never judge where you're at either personally or as a group by one single event. The question is, what, what, how do the events stack up? How do they actually stack up? And where are we coming out on this? Uh, are we actually learning from steps? So my years of teaching, so I make a mistake. I mistreat a student or this, that, or the other thing. Well, I come back and I apologize. And the next day, and the next week, and the next week, I try to make adjustments and correct that, that I'm not making that mistake. Again, I might make another one. But after a while, the students get, they, they, they begin to pick up on this culture sense that, you know what, Mr. Lehman is trying to help me. <laughs> He's not out there to wring my neck. He wants to do something for me. And I, I've always said this. If you want a culture that will work for you, church, family, or wherever, if a person knows that you love them, you can make mistakes. And they'll forgive you lots and lots and lots of times. But if they suspect you don't love them, first mistake you make, you're done. So that's culture. 
Now, I'm using the word culture, and I hope you understand it, maybe a little more broadly than what you're used to hearing it, but the, the way we do things, the way we think, the way we act, the, the doctrinal basis out of which we practice and actually make it become part of our lives. And that's why I'm beginning here, uh, here this evening in chapter 16. You know, perhaps that's enough for us to think about this evening. I think I'll just stop there. Um, Building on the gospel foundation, let every man take heed how he builds thereon. Be sure that we're building on Christ. My question that I'll leave with you that we are going to explore a bit tomorrow is, all right, so how are we building on the foundation? Let's pray. Father, pause here a moment. And I just, I pray, take these few broken remarks. I know that there is plenty of inaccuracies here. But I know by your Holy Spirit you can confirm, you can affirm. You can actually take pieces, parts and pieces of what we say and, and make sense of them in the hearts of believers. That's what I'm praying toward. Lord, I'm praying for the prosperity of the church. I'm praying for the prosperity of the church worldwide. Asia, Africa, Middle East, Europe, South America, United States, North America. Dear Lord, I pray that the church may rise and prosper in our day. Lord, you heard me read a few words about, at least my lament, about Western culture. But Father, you know, you, you are capable. I know that you, you, your hand is mighty to preserve, to shake up, to change. And we want to be part of that changing, part of that influence, that salt and light in the world. And hence, I pray one more time for the prosperity of the church. Give us wisdom in our local congregations to, with, to, to, to pursue truth, to answer that question, who is Christ? Lord, to give ourselves to the body of Christ, to remember to take up our cross, to follow you. And Lord, we'll let the fruitfulness of that, the harvest to you. Give us wisdom in our day. I pray it in Christ. Amen. Now turn the time back to Rich.